0: So I have the privilege to get to speak to you guys a total of four times uh, while Rob is away on sabbatical. Uh, so during that time, I wanted to cover a topic that God had just put on my heart over the past couple of weeks that I thought was, was really cool. It's not talked, a whole, talked about a whole, whole lot. Uh, so we, we titled this little sermon series, Joy to Be. Uh, I just want to talk about biblical joy. Uh, we've, we've heard the term joy uh, a lot. Uh, I'm sure that you have an idea of what joy is. People define it a couple different ways, ultimately. Things that make us happy. Things that bring us happiness and pleasure. Things that we find enjoyment in, right? Sometimes they're they're things that end up giving us purpose. So what I want to dive into uh, during this series is what we've been called to as Christians. What does joy mean in the Christian life? And there's a couple... uh, really important questions that I feel like are associated with this topic that I would kind of try to like to answer uh, difficult questions so there are thoughts about joy like how are we supposed to be a joyous people in a world that is broken in a world that is sinful and in a world that is filled with so much suffering and so much pain as a Christian how are you supposed to do that how can you do that every day Number two, if God gives us a calling to serve and to love and to make disciples, how can we be joyous in the middle of such a serious, daunting, draining, and physically and mentally strenuous task? Number three, how can we be joyous when other believers wound us and hurt us? Number four, how can we be joyous when we fail God due to our struggles with sin? Number five, what does God really expect from us? Does He really want us to be joyous in the middle of all these struggles and challenges? So those are just some questions that I would like to answer uh, as we go through this series, as we move through it. And I'll try to answer a couple of them today, uh, just from the text. So, for now, I want to start with a much simpler question, just to lay the foundation for what I want to do over the next couple of weeks. And that question is just, what is joy? How do we define joy, typically? Joy is an emotion, right? It's a feeling of great pleasure and happiness, It's usually caused by something exceptionally good or satisfying. So we feel joy over countless things. We feel joy when we're successful, when we solve the problems that arise in our lives, when we conquer challenges that come up, when we finish the job or reach the goal that we've been striving towards, when we get the degree that we've worked hard for, or the job that we've worked hard for, or the promotion that we've been after, When we get recognition for our hard work, we feel joy when people admire our intellect or our grit or our achievements. We also feel joy when we're around the people we love, our friends, our family, when we spend quality time with them, when we experience beautiful things together. We feel joy when the people we care about are successful. So we feel joy when we see these beautiful things or have these fun experiences. few just really common secular ways that we view joy. But what does the Bible say about joy? And I think that Galatians chapter 5 verses 22 through 24 help us begin to answer that question in some really neat and wonderful ways. Uh, so if you want to turn with me there in your Bible, and I'll read it to you, uh, and it'll be up on the screen for those of you who don't have your Bible with you it says, "But the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience." Kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ, Jesus, have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So, these verses show us a wide variety of things. One of them being that the list isn't just a list for us to try and check off. Okay, that's the, the biggest and most important thing, I think, right off the bat, is that These are things that are a result of us having a deep, personal relationship with Jesus. These aren't things that we can just make happen in our own lives. These things don't result or don't happen apart from Jesus. There is no love, true love. There's no true joy, true peace, true patience, true kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, or self-control apart from Jesus. You can't have those things. You can't show those things to people because those are characteristics of God. So, it's not just a list of things that we work on, but a list of characteristics that begin to show up in our lives as we follow and submit every part of our lives to Jesus. All of these things are a direct result of us having a close relationship with Him. And we know that this is true because the only way that the Holy Spirit ever comes to dwell in us permanently is when we accept Jesus as our Lord and Savior. So what does that mean now? What does that mean for joy? What does that mean as we move through this series? It means that the next thing that this verse shows us is that true joy comes from the Holy Spirit. In other words, something that comes from God and God alone. So that means that the joy that we're going to talk about today is different from the joy that we just defined a moment ago. That we see people experiencing all the time. It's very important for us to see, because we can't experience that joy that Paul is talking about, that he's going to talk about, until our hearts completely submit to Jesus. And the second thing that the verse shows us is that this joy Paul is talking about is completely different from the joy that we've pursued for most of our lives, most of our lives apart from Christ. So in order to see this, we have to look at the rest of the passage and understand a little bit of the context or background associated with the letter. So, in the book uh, or the letter of Galatians, Paul's writing to these people. It's actually a group of churches who he's ministered to, who he's shared the gospel with, who he's discipled through his teachings. And now he finds out that they're facing some major struggles. The first is that the Galatians have, influ- have been influenced by many of the Jews or Jewish Christians, they're calling themselves. And these people have come into the churches. In Galatia, And they're saying, no, it's not just about you believing in Jesus. It's not just about you having faith in Jesus. You also need to work hard. You also need to follow the Jewish customs and Jewish laws. You need to follow the Old Testament laws. You need to be circumcised. You need to follow the dietary laws. You need to make sure you're honoring the Sabbath in these very specific ways. So they're laying out all these laws and they're saying, you can't really be a part of God's family and God's kingdom, unless you're working hard, unless you're doing these things, unless you're earning his favor. You can't be a part of his people unless you're doing that. That's the first big problem. The second struggle that they're facing is the temptation to gratify the desires of the flesh to pursue lesser things, to pursue the things that God has already called them away from. And I think that those are two big struggles that we can have as well. Because when we look at that first struggle... That's the temptation for us to be religious and to earn God's love by being good. And that will never result in joy. And the second is for us to trade our identity as His children and the joy that He gives us in walking in close fellowship with Him for the lesser joys. The things that Satan and sin and our flesh tempt us to pursue. So, in verses 16-21, through I just want to read to you what Paul says. He says, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and, the, and things like these, I warn you as I warned you before, those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So he has this long list of these sins, of these struggles, of these youthful passions, right? So he's highlighting these things, things that they struggle with. Why is Paul so concerned about this and how does it relate to joy? Paul's concerned about this because our outward conduct our behavior, our actions, the things we do, the things we think, the things we say, every day show what we believe. And they show what we love. And they show what we trust. And they show what we really find our joy in. So these people are claiming to be Christians. Right? But they're not finding their joy in Jesus. They're finding their joy in their ability to work hard and their ability to follow the law. And their ability to be religious, right? And their ability to look a certain way in front of certain people. And then in lesser things that God has called them to leave and that he has shown them are not good for them, right? So those are the two big problems that he has with what they're doing. They're being religious and that causes the pressure for these people to be perfect. And they're chasing after worldly pleasures, All the meanwhile, they're saying, we believe. We believe in the gospel. Yet they're leaving the gospel behind to pursue other things. It's at this point that we see another great difference between the things that we think bring us joy and godly joy. As Paul points something amazing out in verses 24 through 26. Paul says this, Those who belong to Christ, Jesus have crucified the flesh. With its passions and desires, if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. What's Paul doing? Paul is writing to remind them and to remind us that we've crucified the flesh. That it's not about us, that it's not about anything that we've done. It's not about who we are, that it's not about our ability. But it's about Jesus and what He has done for us. That He has laid down His life for us. Not that we can do anything to save ourselves, not that we're good, not that we're important. It was Jesus who put our sins to death on the cross. It is Jesus and His Holy Spirit who empower us to say no to sin today. That's what He's saying. And it is Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit that allow all of these spiritual fruits to grow in us, including joy. But at the same time, Paul is also pointing out how these worldly joys, while pleasing for a moment, are fleeting. They leave us wanting, and they often leave us worse off than when we ever started to pursue them. So, these are all things that are fleeting, and they leave us. We always end up crushed by them, and it's usually for one of three reasons. Because we fail to ever get them. We never get the promotion we never get the partner we want. We never found that, that one person, right? That one Christian woman or man. We never made it through. We were never successful enough. We never worked hard enough. We never got enough recognition. That leaves us beaten down and crushed. So we don't get what we wanted. The second, we get them, but then we lose them. Or even worse... We get those things and they're taken away. And what happens? We're left in our own bitterness. We're angry at our situation, at our unfortunate circumstances. And we lash out at people. We do exactly what he says we provoke one another. We envy others instead of being content in God and who he is and what he's called us to. Number three, we're able to hang on to these things, but we soon find out that they don't consistently bring us joy. their shine fades. We see something beautiful or experience something wonderful, but eventually the rush of joy starts to dwindle. The joy that we once had grows dull. We realize that it wasn't all it was cracked up to be, so we continue to move on and look for other things to fill the hole that is in our hearts. And it's not that all of these things are bad. It's that we have taken something That many of them are meant to be used for good. Many of them are good gifts from God. But we turn them bad because we turn them into an idol. We turn them into an ultimate thing. We're trying to find too much in the created instead of finding everything that we need in the creator. So these ultimate things that we're trying, these worldly things that we're trying to make ultimate things, they fail us. instead of seeing that God is the one who brings us a true and lasting joy. C.S. Lewis has a wonderful illustration about this. He says that as as a young man, he learned that worshiping anything but God would break his heart. This is because he had many, many different loves, and his heart was broken many, many different times. So he experienced many different kinds of joy, only for those joys to be taken away. So he compares us to a man lost in the woods. We're wandering around in the cold. It's getting dark. We can't find our way out of the woods. We're all alone. We're starting to worry. We're starting to get anxious. You don't know if we're gonna make it back. Could die out there. It's a dangerous place to be. We're desperate for warmth. We're lonely. And all of a sudden, sudden we stumble upon a signpost it's beautiful it's made of silver with gold engravings showing us the way to the next town and it looks like there's going to be just enough time for us to get there before dark there's just enough light left for us to see the path that it's telling us to take we have a choice to stop and to follow the road that will take us to this town which will result in us being safe and our needs being met and us finding food and shelter and warmth and us being surrounded by others who care for us. But instead, we choose to sit there in awe of the sign, so happy to have found it. And before we know it, it's too dark to see the path that it was telling us to take. And once again, we end up in the cold, all alone. And this is exactly what we do with God. He has created many things for us to enjoy, but all of those things are meant to point us to Him, just like the sign is meant to point us to safety. He's the ultimate provider of our joy. Not all these other things. These other things are wonderful. These other things are good. These other things have been created for us, for our joy, but not for our ultimate joy. All of these things are meant to point us back to Him as the most beautiful, wonderful thing that we could ever have. That's the purpose of everything else. If it's all about Him, then that's how we're meant to see it. Because He is the God who loves us and laid down His life for us. He is the God who desires a relationship with us. He is a God that wants us and who provides us with a joy that will never cease. And that joy is a relationship with Him. It's the second quick point I'd like to make. God gives us a joy without rivalry where we don't have to compete with one another to be loved. That's one of the most profound things that I think we could ever learn, especially where we live. I don't know about you, but when I grew up, when I was growing up, it was always, Dalton, you have to be the best. You have to throw the fastest. You have to run the fastest. You have to hit the ball the best. You have to hit the ball the hardest. Doing that gets you recognition. Getting recognized means that you're loved. Getting those accomplishments means you're well-known. Those things are important. You have to work the hardest. You have to do the best. Those are the things that you have to do in order to be happy. It's not true. God is saying, I died for all of you because I love you and you're valuable and you're important to me and I care for you and you have purpose. Not that you have to work hard to be loved. He's saying, I already worked hard for you. Don't you dare work hard so you can be loved. Because the truth is, you can't work hard enough to earn God's love. That's why he had to send Jesus to die for us. That's what he wants us to understand. That's what he wants us to get. So, why is godly joy different from worldly joy? Because you don't have to go fight for it as hard as you possibly can because it's already yours in Jesus. Jesus has already won it for you, He's already done it perfectly, He's already done it beautifully. Next point that I would like to make is how can we be joyous? I want to answer that question. How can we be joyous in a world where we will suffer and experience pain? Super important question, super difficult question, I think. So, this is another way that godly joy is different from worldly joy that I just want to point out. It's because we rejoice in a hope that never fades away, and we have a joy that is always present in the middle of suffering. So, Romans 5, verses 2 through 5, I want to read them to you. It says, through him, it's through Jesus we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. These verses are full of life-changing truths for us to cling to. I want to read just the second half of verse 2 to you so we can really focus in on it. It says, We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And verse 3. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. The verses answer the question. They let you know is it possible? It is absolutely possible. For you to have joy in the middle of a sinful, broken world full of pain, full of suffering. These verses are amazing, but what's even more amazing to me and what will help us understand these concepts even more is that we see that they're applied before they're ever even written. And they're applied in John chapter 11, verses 1 through 44. I'm not going to read it all to you because we don't have enough time. But most of you probably know the story. This is about Lazarus' death, and Jesus is there, and he's waiting. He waits three days before he gets to see him. The reason that he waits those days is because at that point in time, they said, if you wait these three days, that at that point, they're really dead. The spirit has left the body. That's it. The soul has left the body, and this person is truly, truly gone. There's something that is just so incredible to me, about this passage that I think is really going to help us understand this, is that after the death of Lazarus occurs, Martha's response is centered on those two verses that we just read—the second half of verse two and verse three. So, I just want to read to you verses twenty-one through twenty-seven in John eleven. It says Martha said to Jesus, "Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now." I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, Your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus says to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. So what's so amazing about these verses? She's clearly upset. She's clearly lost her brother. She cares for him deeply. They've been weeping. The other people come to console her and her sister. But what is she doing? Here in verse 24, she says, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. She is rejoicing in the hope of the gospel. In the middle of her sadness, in the middle of her grief, she's saying, I have a hope that I can look forward to. I know that death is not the end. I know that my brother will be with you. And on the day that you return, after he dies, after he's resurrected, after he comes back for the final time to bring us home with him, I know that my brother will be with you. She knows that. It's not saying you can't be sad. It's not saying that you have to put on a fake smile all the time. Life as a Christian is much harder than life before you were a Christian. God knows that. Jesus says count the cost. He knows what he's calling us to. It doesn't take our joy away. It doesn't mean that you'll be smiling all the time. You can try. I try to do that all the time. I want people to see the joy of the Lord in my life. The world will hurt you. Believers will hurt you. You will experience pain and suffering and loss. But you can always look forward to the hope that you have in Jesus. Always. That's the purpose that he wants us to care. So how can we maintain our joy? How can we not collapse? Because we know. We know the promise of the gospel that says we are his no matter what. And nothing can separate us from him. And on that day that he returns, we will be with him. When we die, we will be with him. Death is not the end for us. She rejoices in that. And that is something wonderful to rejoice in. The second thing that I'd like to point out here that I think is super important is Jesus and his heart. His heart for us. So keep in mind that Jesus knows. He knows he's going to resurrect Lazarus. He knows that they're upset. He knows that they're broken. What Jesus does next is so incredible because it shows... God's heart for us. And if it doesn't bring joy to us, then then I don't know what will. He reminds her of the truth of the gospel. He's not expecting her to smile and be happy. He's not expecting her to smile. But he also doesn't want her to bottle up her emotions and fake joy And as we'll see in just a moment, Jesus who knows that he will resurrect Lazarus also weeps. And we see God's heart for us. And this is what I was talking about. If you'll turn to John chapter 11, verse 32. It says this. When Mary came to where Jesus was, the other sister, and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. She says the same thing that Martha says to him. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him? But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? And we know that Jesus will raise him. So why? Why is Jesus weeping? People, scholars have talked about this, the commentaries I've read over and over and debated. Why why would Jesus weep? Jesus knows He's going to raise him again. He's going to be with them again. They're friends, right? Why would Jesus weep? This is something that he's going to do for his glory, to show people who he is, to show people his power and his divinity. Why does he weep? Because his heart is broken for us. He sees the pain that death causes. He sees the heartache, the heartbreak of life. What it means to lose something. What it means to be hurt. What it means to lose a loved one. Jesus is broken for us. Jesus is the reason why we see that it's not biblical for us to be a people who experience no emotions except happiness and joy. Jesus shows us the sadness, extreme, stomach-wrenching grief is wired into us. It is a part of his character and it is a part of ours, the same way joy is. And it's a biblical thing for us to experience. It is a part of loving people and it is a part of experiencing joy in God's word and in his work. It's a part of life. So Jesus knows what it's like to feel this pain, to lose a close friend. And Jesus could have brushed this off like it's no big deal, right? Because he's going he's to resurrect or he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead, Jesus is crying because He deeply cares for the people that He sees. He deeply cares for Mary. He deeply cares for Martha. He deeply cares for us. This death affects them the same way it affects all of us. It's a terrible thing that fills the heart with sadness. Jesus cries because His heart was broken for all of us. And because his heart was so moved and so broken for all of us, what was his plan? His plan was to go and do the same thing. His plan was to go and die for us so that there would be no more death, no more suffering, no more separation from God so that we would get to spend eternity in heaven with him in a place where there is no death, where there is nothing but experiencing the true joy of presence and relationship with God that was the purpose he sees the brokenness he sees the hurt and his desire is to go to the cross so that we might experience a full healing so that we might experience true joy so that we might know what it means to have real hope true joy that's his goal The last thing that I that I want to talk about, well before we move into that, that is the pinnacle of what we believe. That Jesus is at the center of everything, right? That there is joy in the middle of our darkness, our darkest hour, the worst times, our greatest grief. Because we can look forward to Jesus. Because we believe in something that is technically, we say, already, but not yet. It's already been fulfilled. It's already guaranteed. It's already got the stamp and the seal of approval. But we're not there yet, right? That's something that brings us joy, is that our future is secure. We have a joy and a hope in Him. Because of that, because of what He's done for us. Because of His great love for us, we find joy and hope in Him. The last thing uh, I just want to talk about very, very briefly is that this pain, this suffering, we've talked about it before, God uses it to grow us. He uses it to stretch us. Timothy Keller has a great illustration about this. He says, do you remember how your mom always told you not to spoil your dinner? You're going for the bag of chips. You're going for some candy. You're going for a chocolate bar, right? She says, don't spoil your dinner. Don't do it. Why? Because you get that sugar rush and then you think you're not hungry and then later on that night you realize, oh, I'm actually starving. And my body didn't get any of the nutrients that it needed. I didn't get the protein, I didn't get the calcium, I didn't get the carbs. I didn't get any of it, right? He's saying, Christian life is like that. When we get rid of the trash, when we get rid of the junk food, When God brings us through suffering in times like that, that's when we get really close to God. That's when we realize when all the worldly happiness goes away, when things get really bad, because we've based everything on good circumstances, Christian joy actually gets stronger. Because at that point, we finally realize what we need. That we don't need to be recognized. That we don't need anyone to say our name. That we don't need to work hard to feel loved or cared for. Because Jesus has already given us everything that we need in Him. That's His point. So the last thing I want to leave you with is, do you know Jesus that intimately? That personally, does it stir your heart? Does it grab you? Does it move you? Does it change your desires? Have you talked to Him about what you love? Do you know what brings you the greatest joy? Is it Jesus or is it something else? We can say we believe the gospel and we can say that we believe in God, but at the end of the day, in the same way that our mouths speak from the overflow of our hearts, Our actions come from the overflow of our hearts. What we truly believe is shown, what we say, what we do, and what we think. Over the next few weeks, I want to look at those things. I want to look at what it means to truly find joy in Jesus in the middle of what God has called us to as disciple makers, in the middle of suffering, in the middle of all these different things. Let me pray for you.